Good morning. My name is Danny Beach, and I serve as the equipping pastor here at East Cooper. And uh, if you are new or newer with us this morning, I want to say welcome and thank you for being here. It's a joy to be able to worship with you and to sing uh, to the glory of God and to sit under the teaching of God's word with you. We're glad that you're here. If this is your church home, and maybe you've been here for a couple years or maybe a couple uh, decades, welcome home. We're glad that you're here as well. And it's, it's good to be together as the body of Christ. It's good to be together on the Lord's Day, and we're glad that you're here. Now, we are all coming from different uh, places in life. We're all coming from different ages and stages, whether we're single or married or empty nesters or we have young kids, early in career, retired, wherever it is. And we're also coming from different places uh, as far as, like, how did the week go? Some of us have had a tough week. Maybe it's been a tough year. Some of us are coming perhaps with burden or anxiety. Uh, maybe some of us have come from a great week where we're really, uh, things are falling in line and the family's good and maybe got a raise. Whatever it may be, it is our hope and prayer that, that the Lord speaks to you this morning. So thank you for being a part of uh, the, the body of Christ today. Uh, before we jump in, I want to let you know a little rule that I have for myself as I prepare to preach a sermon, okay? And this, the rule, very simply, is whenever I receive an invitation to preach, uh, that I'm going to preach the text that I'm personally studying at, at the moment. And it's one step, it's not a Bible verse, the Bible doesn't tell us to do that, but it's one step that I use to try to ask God, what would you have me say? And, and so, uh, we believe that all of Scripture is God-breathed and is beneficial for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, and that the whole Word of God speaks to the whole body of God. So with that in mind, when I was asked to preach, I was personally studying Amos chapter 2. And some of you might be thinking, it's been a while since I've read Amos. Uh, some of you might be thinking... I didn't know Amos was in the Bible. <laughs> uh, maybe if you were raised like I was, you remember famous Amos cookies, and you're like, is this a Christian company? And I didn't know it all this time, and I, if so, I'm going to treat them like Chick-fil-A, you know, and I'll, I'll buy them all up. Well, Amos is not famous. It's not at the top of the devotional reading list. It's a small book in the Old Testament. It's one of 12 minor prophets, meaning uh, just a shorter prophet as opposed to the major prophets, which are longer. Um, it was... Uh, and it's written in the form of ancient poetry, which can be a little bit difficult to navigate. Um, but what we know is that Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 5 said, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Now Jesus was saying a lot with that statement. But one of the things that Jesus was saying was he was tying his messianic work with what happened in the Old Testament and the prophets. He's saying that there is a connection here. There is something that was begun then that I am bringing to completion and fulfillment here. And if you are a Christian in 2019, a Christ follower, somebody who is seeking to conform your life to that of Christ, then you need to have the full picture that Jesus was talking about. Not just the New Testament, but you need to know what happened, what God started in the Old Testament that Jesus completed. The important, the, uh, the prophets are important. Before we jump in, I want to have a, uh, cover a little bit of historical background so we kind of know what's going on when Amos was written, and then uh, point out a couple things about understanding 
ancient poetry, and we'll begin to see a rhythm that goes on through here. So historically speaking, we see that God built the children of Israel into a great nation. And as a result of sin within the leadership and sin amongst the people, the nation of Israel divided. It split in half to where there was a northern kingdom that we call the kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom that we call the kingdom of Judah. And the book of Amos was written to the northern kingdom Israel. And it's, it'll, it'll be important as we read through Amos 1 and 2. Now, when it comes to ancient uh, poetry, okay, now ancient poetry uses a lot of cultural context and even a lot of cities and names that we're not familiar with. Don't get bogged down in that. But poetry, just like today, kind of has a little bit of a rhythm, all right? If you read a poem today, if you read lyrics to a song, there's kind of a recurring theme or a melodic, a melodic line that's going on. And we're going to see that in the book of Amos as we read the first two chapters. They're not that long, so don't worry too much about it. But what we see in Amos 1 and 2 is we see eight pronouncements of judgment against eight different countries. All right, eight pronouncements of judgment against eight different countries. Six of those countries are the pagan nations surrounding the northern kingdom Israel. The seventh pronouncement of judgment is against the brother country Judah, and the eighth pronouncement is a little bit longer and is against Israel, the audience of Amos. All right? And then this rhythm that we have in poetic literature is uh, each of these pronouncements of judgment have three parts, a beginning, a middle, and an end. They all begin the same way, eight times. Eight times we hear, for three transgressions of fill in the blank, Gaza, Damascus, but for four, I will not revoke the punishment. For three transgressions of, and for four, I will not provoke the punishment. And simply, it's a poetic way to express excess, excessive sin. Okay, so it's a, it's a phrase that's used throughout Scripture, so we know that's what it means. Imagine a police officer on the side of the road, and somebody passes him going 10 miles per hour over, maybe, maybe 12 miles per hour over. And the police officer says, I can withhold my judgment. I, I can make that call. I could show grace. You know, I could withhold my judgment. Maybe he changes lanes without using his blinker and he says, I'm not going to enforce the law on this guy right now. However, imagine another guy drives past him going 25 miles per hour and he has a gun and he's actually shooting at people out the window and he's gunning for pedestrians and bikers and trying to run them over and he's trying to push the school bus off the side of the road filled with school kids. The police officer in that moment would say, enough. Enough, this is too much, and I am going to take the judgment that I have authority over and pour it out to do all that I can to stop this guy. All right, so that's the beginning for three transgressions of, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Then the middle part is always a because statement, and it simply identifies the sin for because of the following reasons. The third part of this poetic rhythm is uh, the judgment that God pours out. And there's a repetition of two different words, fire and devour, fire and devour. And we see that symbolizing God's judgment and wrath all throughout Scripture, that God is an all-consuming fire, that when it pours down, there is no hope. When God puts his judgment on us, it is like a fire that devours the nations, it devours the, devours the people, the, the kings, the princes, the walls, the gates. All right, so we're going to read through the first six of these uh, judgments on the pagan nations around. And don't get lost with the names that you might not recognize, but follow this rhythm that we see here in Amos. So if you would, follow with me, Amos chapter 1, 
Beginning in verse 3, whether you have a, a Bible or you have a Bible app, it's good to see where we're going in the text this morning. All right, hear the rhythm. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants of the valley of Avon. And him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kerr, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants of Ashdod, and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron and against the remnant of the Philistines, and they shall perish, says the Lord God." Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever." So I will send a fire upon Taman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Amorites, I will not revoke the punishment, because they ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their borders. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind, and their king shall go into exile, he and his princes forever, says the Lord." Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab, and for four I will not revoke the punishment. Because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom, so I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Kerioth. And Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting, and the, the sound of the trumpet. And I will cut off the ruler from its midst, and I will kill all of its princes with him, says the Lord. So these are the six pronouncements of judgments to the six surrounding pagan nations. And what we see here is each of these sins of excess all fall under the category that C.S. Lewis would call uh, sins against the natural law, okay? Sins that all human beings are aware of, that they know right from wrong. And the easiest example that we can look at in this text is when it says they ripped open the pregnant women. And this is always gonna be uh, too much, across the line, totally unnecessary. There's never going to be a situation in any battle, anywhere, ever to do something this treacherous. All right? Now, we could go back and look at each of these six pronouncements of judgments and see connections with all different levels of social injustice, whether it's oppression or taking advantage of people or, or violence or unbridled wrath. But what we see here is something very, very unique. And this is where Bible study methods come in place, okay? We need to understand who is the author, who is the audience, and what is the occasion for this book to be written, all right? The author here we know to be Amos, and Amos is a prophet. Now, a prophet is not somebody who just has an inkling of, hey, let me, let me share something with you guys that's on my heart, all right? A prophet is not somebody who opens a scroll and says, you know, I was reading in the ancient texts, and let's actually look and see what this says. No, a prophet is somebody that is called by God, 
All right? If you read the book of Amos, you see that Amos came from a town in Judah, and God called him to go to the northern kingdom Israel and say a specific message to a specific people. All right, so Amos was speaking to the northern kingdom Israel about the pagan nations. He's not speaking to the pagan nations. He is God's mouthpiece. So really, what we see here is God telling Israel, I will judge the nations. That's, that's what he's saying here. He's saying, my fire will pour on the nations for their sin. Their sin will not be left unaccounted for. I am God. I will judge the nations. That, that, that's what he's saying. And, and, and you have to wonder here what Israel's response to this was. Like when Israel heard the words of God through Amos, were they high-fiving each other and, and chest-thumping each other? Because they were the victims of some of these uh, heinous acts of brutality and depravity. Where they saying, yeah, finally the pagan nations, they're getting theirs. And God's wrath because he is a good God and God is a God who pays for, uh, or casts judgment on sin. And he's going he's gonna to get them and high-fiving each other. And, there, and there's, there's a real sense, church, for us even today to know that God will judge the nations. All right, it's still true today, even though this was written in the Old Testament. We know the recurring theme throughout Scripture is that sin will not be left unaccounted for. And as we look at our world and we see oppression and we see violence and we see wrongs being done, we see lies, we see sexual misconduct, we see racism, we see abortion, we see unbridled wrath with our political system, we see all of this mess out there. We can learn here that the same truth applies, that God will judge the nations. God will judge sin. Just because it's not pouring down at the moment doesn't mean that God isn't watching, that God doesn't know that sin will not be left unaccounted for. We can have confidence in that. Now, as Christians, we are called to stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves. As, as Christians, we're called to call out Injustice. As, as Christians, we're supposed to be a part of the solution, but we are in a fallen world, and if it's not one thing, it's going to be the next thing, and sometimes we can drown, and I don't know what to do about abortion. I don't know what to do about the anger in our nation. I don't know what to do about fill in the blank, and, and we can have confidence that God will judge. That's specifically what he was telling the nation in the northern kingdom, Israel, through the mouth of Amos. Let's continue in the text. It says in chapter 2, verse 4, this is the seventh judgment. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. And, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. We need to see that there's a distinction in this pronouncement of judgment that's different than the first six. And the distinction is in the because statement. It begins the same for three transgressions of Judah. And for four, I will not revoke the punishment. It ends the same way with fire and devouring. But the middle is different. What does it say? It says, because they, meaning Judah, have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. But their lives have been led astray after, the, after which their fathers walked. And it's a poetic way of saying idolatry. Their fathers had idols and it passed them on to their kids. So the kids had idols too. What we see here 
you start to wonder, what's Israel thinking at this point? All right, if they're cheering the judgment that will befall their enemies, what are they thinking about Brother Judah? They're next door. Are they thinking, man, those bombs are dropping kind of close? Or maybe they're thinking Brother Judah is the bad brother and they've been sinning and they're going to get punished too. Well, the distinction that we see here is that God is, is pronouncing judgment because they have broken the covenant. They have broken the covenant because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. God is saying here, there's a different standard. Different rules apply to my chosen people. And I'm judging them, but I'm judging them for different reasons. Old Testament scholar Paul House says that a covenant adds definition to a relationship. It does not create the relationship. So God has a relationship with all mankind because he's the creator God, but he has a particular relationship with his covenant people. Think of the covenant of marriage. All right, I'm, I'm married to Lauren, and we have vowed before God, we have covenanted with each other that our relationship will be different and unique. We might have uh, different friends, we might have different coworkers, acquaintances, neighbors, all of these different relationships, but there is one relationship within marriage that is unique, and there's boundaries. All right, and I'm, and I'm called to live a certain way within that covenant. And the thing is, is the covenant is good. I mean, the covenant is really, really good. And when you're living in marriage according to the covenant, there's joy and there's love and there's laughter and there's fulfillment and there's, uh, there's meaning and there's, you're raising the kids and it's, there's, there's more there. And, and we've all seen that, that couple that's been married 50 or 60 or 70 years and we think, yes, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want that. I want to walk hand in hand with that person because they've kept the covenant. They are, they are still in love after all these. I want that for my kids and I want that for my kids' kids. The covenant is good when you're living in the covenant. And if the covenant is broken, and maybe some of you have walked that road in marriage, it's, it's hard. It's a burden. It's difficult. It's not the way it's supposed to be. So those bombs are falling real close to Israel here. Continue on. Amos 2, 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorites before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and their roots below. Also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you for 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarite drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, 
I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift. The strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. And he who handles the bow shall not stand. And he who is swift afoot shall not save himself, nor he who rides the horse shall save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked that day, declares the Lord. Now, in this eighth pronouncement of judgment, we see more. We see the telling of a story here. All right, this is, this is prolonged, different than the other seven. We see this pronouncement beginning the same way for, for three transgressions of Israel. And for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And then there's this laundry list of how you've broken the covenant, Israel, with all of these social injustices. We won't unpack them all, but it says you've taken the cloak of the needy and, and you lay on them by the altar. And in the Old Testament... Excuse me, in the Mosaic Covenant, what you see is if somebody lends you their cloak for a loan, you're supposed to give it back to them at night because they're going to be cold. That's the only opportunity they have for, for warmth because they're poor and they're destitute. And here it says in the scripture that you, you took their cloak and you lent them money, but you didn't give it back. But you were all nice and cuddly while you let the poor suffer. All right, and then there's several other examples. And then there's gross immorality referenced here. And it's all of this is happening where? Around the altar around the temple of God. Throughout the course of Amos, as it's unpacked, we begin to see a behavior among the northern, king, uh, the northern kingdom that the scholars refer to as false worship, which is different than idolatry. All right, false worship meaning they had their temple to God, capital G. They had their altar, and they gave their sacrifices, and they gave their offerings, and it even says that they sang worship songs. But all of it was a show. It was checking the boxes. It was going through the rigmarole of church saying, I want to do these things to appease my conscience and validate myself before God. Even though they're, they're sinning sexually, even though they're involved in false worship, even though they're oppressing people, the poor. And then the text continues with several of these but I statements. And God says, I have been the agent of change for good for the nation of Israel since its conception. All right, I'm the one that freed you from Egypt. I'm the one that broke the chains of your slavery. And I'm the one that walked with you through the wilderness, feeding you manna and giving you water. I'm the one that defeated your enemies, the Edomites. And not only did I defeat them, but I gave you their town so that you didn't have to build your own. And I, I gave you opportunity to hear from me. I gave you prophets so that you could hear the words of God. I gave you Nazarites that you could see what, what, what righteousness looked like and they could live it out day by day. But you, it says, you shut up the prophets. You gave wine to the Nazarite, breaking the Nazarite vow. And so therefore, I'm gonna press you down. My wrath and judgment will fall on you because you've broken the covenant. It doesn't matter how fast you are, my judgment will fall. It doesn't matter how strong you are, my judgment will fall. It doesn't matter how big your armies, your military, my, my judgment, it doesn't matter how brave you are, they, you will still run away naked as a coward on that day. And church, what we're seeing here unpacked from Amos, the mouthpiece of God, to the northern kingdom is that God's judgment will fall on us too. That we are responsible for how we live now. Now, now some people might say, well, anyway, wait a minute. We're in the New Covenant, right? New Testament. Jesus came. Jesus paid it all. 
all to him I owe. Uh, Romans 12.9, therefore now we are under no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Well, what we see in Amos is that you can both be the covenant people of God and be under God's judgment. What we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, um, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is speaking to Christians in 1 Corinthians 3. Or he's speaking to Christ followers in the early first century church, and he's instructing them on what righteous living looks like. Jesus has already come and died and has been risen again and has already ascended, and Paul is speaking to believers. And this is what Paul says about what their life should look like. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12, it says, If anyone... Builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw, meaning how you live your life, all right? Are you building your life with gold, silver, and precious stones, meaning righteousness and faithfulness, or not? Wood, hay, and straw. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. Capital D, if you see it in the scriptures, meaning the day of judgment. The day will disclose it because it, meaning your life, will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through the fire. I mean, the NIV says, as one escaping through the flames. I mean, get the word picture here. Right, imagine you're, you're in your house, you're, you're in your bedroom, and you have some candles, and you, you knock them over, and, and your, your bed ignites in flames, and it goes up the drapes, and you're just trying to knock the fire out, and, and, and it's, the room is filled with smoke, and you're choking, and you're scared, and it, the fire goes across the ceiling, and, and things start falling on you, and you realize hope is lost, and so you break through the window and fall to the ground, screaming and crying and coughing, and, 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 and your life has been saved, as your house crashes behind you, everything you had is now gone. And, it's, and that's not the way it's supposed to be, church. That's not, that's not the reason for the covenant. The covenant is that we can have life now and in eternity. John 10.10 10 says, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. John 3.16, that you may have eternal life. My covenant with my wife is not just so I have somebody to pass my inheritance to at my death. My covenant with my wife is so that we can live within the covenant during our life. So church, what we do matters now. The way you live your life matters now because there will be a reward in heaven one day or not. You will have your life. If you have committed your life to Christ and you say, you are my Lord and my Savior, I confess my sins to you, please save me, your, your soul is safe but that's not the end game. There's a calling on each one of our lives to live according to the scriptures. And what does the Bible call us to do? And how does the Bible instruct us to live? And there's a danger, all right? There's a danger here. We all fall for this at different times. There's a danger in thinking, if judgment is not falling on me now, then my life must be validated. I think we all struggle with that. I know I do. If, if, if things are going well, then, then I must, it must be peachy between me and God. Or you look at the nations, you say, look at all that sin and I'm not living that way, so therefore I'm good between me and God. Danger, danger, that's not, that's not how we gauge ourselves. 
Psalm 119.1 says, blessed is the man who walks in blameless, who walks, walks blamelessly. How, how do I know that I'm blameless? What does the scripture say? Are you in the church? Are there other people sharpening you? Are you in the word? Are you in prayer? Are you living a life of repentance? Are, are, are godly people speaking into your life? We have the scriptures to inform us how we ought to be living so that we could stand before God on that day and when the fire comes down to either burn away or reveal, we can say, yes, I've been walking in the covenant with my God like that, like that older couple over there who's walking hand in hand and it is glorious and is joy-filled. Church, what you do matters today. The way you handle your kids, the way you deal with your grandkids, even if that situation isn't as good as you want it to be, the way you handle your aging parents, the way you handle the job that you really don't like. There's, there's a faithfulness that we are all called to in the ups and the downs and the highs and the lows and the good and the junk in life. We're called to that. What's interesting as you, as you study these eight pronouncements of judgment is you begin to see a timeline come at you. You begin to see that you can begin identifying through the Bible and through other historical records when these sins happened that, they're call, that, that Amos is calling out in all eight countries. And we know that Amos was written in the mid-750s B.C. And we know that we can also identify when the judgment was poured out because it, it, it didn't pour out immediately. So you have sin that happened a couple generations, judgment pronounced a couple generations, judgment poured out. And church, I think what we see here is that we're called to the generations. We're called to the generations. It, it's so easy to get caught in the trap to think that it's, it's just me and Jesus. I'm just going to try to do my faithful thing and then one day I'm going to die and I'm going to go to heaven. In a real sense, church, we are called to live, to set up the next generation for righteousness. Amos is a tough book of judgment. But sprinkled throughout Amos, you see glimmers of hope. Chapter 5, it says three times, seek me and live. Seek the Lord and live. Seek good and not evil and live so that the Lord of hosts can live among you. That you can be hand in hand with your God and he can fight your battles for you. Seek me and live. And church, we have a calling on our life right now. Our lives matter now in what we do and how we do it and in faithfulness and righteousness that we are called to set up the next generation to seek God and live because they'll pick up where we left off. And you know that to be true. And our parents and our grandparents before us, when they stand before the judgment seat of God, they'll be held to give us the same account. Did you set up the next generation to say, seek God and live? All throughout the Old Testament, we hear this verbiage of remind your children, tell your children of the good things that God has done. Tell them in the morning, tell them in the evening, remind them throughout the day. In the New Testament, we see remember, remind them, remember, remind them. We're called to be a part of the Lord's house every week so that we can, we can relish in the goodness of what God has done, that we can be reminded. Church, be encouraged that your life matters now. And we are called to live in a faithful way so that what we do ripples way beyond our life. Now, there, there is a burden in thinking through the whole idea that I'll be held to give an account for the next generation. And that's heavy. But also, don't you want to know that your life matters beyond today? Isn't it good to, to revel 
in the idea that, that your faithfulness today, in some mysterious way, I, I can't explain it all, that your faithfulness, according to the scriptures today, will impact your kids, 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 that you will never meet. I think that's what we see in scripture here. You know, through the heaviness of Amos, uh, judgment is not an easy topic. But as you read the nine chapters of Amos, at the end of the book, you begin to hear a faint, sweet song. If you have your Bible, flip to the end. Amos chapter 9, the second half of the last chapter, verse 11, see how this prophetic book of judgment ends. Amos 9.11 says, and again, remember this is poetry. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they, being the people of God, may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. Now, the original audience, all right, those that Amos was speaking to would recognize that this is a reference to a coming greater Messiah, the booth of David, from the line of David. David had died 250 years before this book was written, okay? The booth represented the dwelling place of God, or another word is a tent. The King James Version uh, translates, this, translates this as the tabernacle. We see this recurring theme all through Scripture that God desires to dwell with his people. We see it in Eden. We see it in the tabernacle in the wilderness where God dwelled with his children in the, in the wilderness. We see it in the temple in the Holy of Holies where God met with the priests. All right, the representatives of the nation. We see Jesus Christ himself coming in the flesh to dwell with mankind. We see Jesus ascending and the Holy Spirit coming and dwelling within us. And we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. There's this theme all through. And one day we're going to be in heaven dwelling with God. All right, so there's this theme. So the original audience would know that the booth of David was a reference to the coming one that they didn't have a full picture of yet. And that one was going to be destroyed By what? By the wrath of God for the sins of the world. But judgment is not the end game. Judgment is not the end game. It says, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches, and I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that this one who is destroyed, this one who is the meeting place of God and man, will be rebuilt. And then it goes on to say that they may possess the remnant of Edom. This is a poetic way of saying that they may possess the prophet, excuse me, the promised land or the promise through the booth of David. You can participate in the promise. And who is it available to? That they may possess, it says, meaning the, the covenant people of God, the nation of Israel, but also the nations. The nations. How does Amos begin? The nations are judged, and then God's covenant people are judged. How does Amos end? That one day there will be one who will be destroyed for you, and will be rebuilt for you, that all who believe in faith, this one booth of David that will be restored by God, will have access to the promise, you and the nations. 
we said at the beginning, in Matthew 5, Jesus said at the beginning of his ministry, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. At the end of Jesus' time on this earth, after the resurrection, all right, so he died, was buried, was raised again on the third day. One of the, his very first conversations was on the road to Emmaus. And this is what Jesus said between his resurrection and his ascension. Jesus said this, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his names to all the nations, beginning with Jerusalem. It's like, it's like he was thinking of Amos here. God will judge the nations, but judgment is never the end game. It is a call to repentance. It is a call to seek me and live. I am a long-suffering God of grace. And we all have opportunity to trust in the booth of David and trust into Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and alignment of our life with what Scripture teaches us so that when the day comes, it will be made manifest how we lived our life and that we will hopefully receive reward for a life of faithfulness and righteousness and our life will ripple through eternity for the good of the kingdom and hopefully for the good of my kids and yours too. So church, wherever you're at today, maybe, you're, maybe you've been living life as if judgment is never coming. Amos is a warning against that. We can forget. We can forget. If, if you're a Christ follower and life has been busy and you've gotten caught up with stuff and You've forgotten the call to seek God and live in such a way that you're setting up the next generation to seek God and live. Forgiveness is found in Jesus. Say, God, I, I believe and I trust in you to take my life and help me conform my thinking, my discipline, my giving, my family, my sin, my work, my bad relationships, all to how you have instructed me to live. Church, this is, this is the calling on our life today. It's what Amos was proclaiming way back then. And we see application to us today rooted in the foundation of Jesus Christ. Would you please pray with me? Father, as we walk through these judgment pronouncements, please help us to see that you are calling us to yourself. That judgment is never the end game, that you are always beckoning us to seek you and live. That because of the finished work of Christ, we can trust in you and participate in your promise. Father, I pray for the church as we have gathered today that you would help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to make application to these things as we seek to conform our life to your word in your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.